This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows. And away we go. Welcome to the July 18th edition of The Conspiracy Show. How's your summer so far? Hope you're enjoying it. We've had kind of a mixture of. Uh, uh, cool, wet weather, and then some real hot, sticky stuff, and we're in the midst of that right now. Uh, so I hope the rest of your summer is uh, clear sailing and relaxing. You know, they're having quite a holiday uh, out in uh, Monterio, California, and we'll talk about uh, the 2,700-acre campground out there. and the uh, It's sort of a playground for the super-rich and super-elite, although... There's some suggestion that uh, they do more than just pitch tents and, uh, I don't know, tell ghost stories. Uh, But let me give you a heads up what's coming up on the program, first of all, a little bit later. I got an email from John Hutchison uh, last week. It was actually a link to uh, an ad he's uh, taken out on eBay. Now, John Hutchison, if you don't know, is a uh, a Canadian inventor. He's, quite frankly... uh, Eccentric, to say the least, and he's uh, he's a self-taught uh, physicist. This is a guy that that thinks outside the box, and he has been uh, ridiculed by mainstream science uh, or scientists. Uh, even the government has tried to distance themselves uh, from it, although they initially showed great interest in some of his inventions. He is the discoverer of something called the Hutchison effect. And about twenty years ago, he stumbled onto this quite by accident. He had these large Tesla coils set up in his uh, laboratory in his uh, apartment near Vancouver. And when he flipped this thing on one day, it started to produce very strange physical phenomena, including the levitation of heavy objects, uh, metal bars would suddenly become jelly-like, and uh, some of this stuff even uh, started to sound a little bit like the old Philadelphia experiment. Do you remember that? Uh, or do you remember hearing tales of that, the disappearance of the USS Eldridge uh, off the coast of Long Island back in the 40s? Now, uh, back to this uh, eBay ad. He is auctioning or selling off 
his Tesla anti-gravity lab in Vancouver. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll check in with John Hutchison and get an update uh, from him. It's been a while since I've talked to John. He's always very interesting. Now, I mentioned earlier, fun, fun, fun under the uh, summer sun. And uh, in um, Monterio, California, 2601 Bohemian Avenue, to be exact, there is a, uh, a huge campground there. And uh, it belongs to a private uh, San Francisco-based men's art club known as the Bohemian Glove. And I believe it goes back to about 1872. And in mid-July each year, right about now, in fact, Bohemian Grove hosts a three-week encampment of some of the most powerful men in the world. It's an all-male membership and includes artists, particularly musicians, but many prominent business leaders, government officials, including many former and future U.S. presidents, senior media executives, and people uh, generally of, of power. And you say, okay, so there's certainly uh, nothing wrong with, uh, with uh, powerful people meeting from time to time, except that it's, uh, it's done in a very secretive uh, manner. And there is also, there are also these nagging rumors and legends, and we'll find out, uh, in fact, whether they're substantiated or not, that there is some debauchery going on there. Uh, people parading around nude and in various states of drunkenness. And, uh, but, but further than that, some of the rituals that are performed there, it is suggested that they are satanic. Well, thankfully, uh, there is an organization that is uh, working, their researchers, along uh, with, uh, with media, uh, people like me, they, they assist people like me in lifting the veil of secrecy over this Bohemian Grove uh, Club. It's called the Bohemian, uh, the Bohemian Grove Action Network. And one of the co-founders uh, joins us tonight. His name is David Cordingly. David, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. And it is uh, just about now. In fact, I believe uh, this week... They're sort of starting some of their preliminary uh, 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 camps and, and uh, 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 rituals and so forth. Well, this is the first weekend. The gates are open today, and if you go to the Sonoma County Airport nearby, you see a lot of planes coming in, helicopters, and you'll see big 747s land with one passenger on it. So that shows you how much they care about the environment. 747 with one passenger. Yeah, it's very common. I don't know if it's 727, I guess. I don't know if they handle it. A bigger one, but you see these large planes land, and you see two pilots and one person get off, and that's a member of the Grove. So, how many greenhouse gases did he burn in order to go to the Grove this year? And that just shows you how irresponsible they are to the, the environment and the earth. I mentioned the size of uh, of uh, this tract of land, twenty seven hundred acres. But give me a sense of what else is is in that uh, campground. I understand that there are, are, are many uh, camps. Uh, yeah, there's 120, about 120 different camps there. Some of them are just a board on the floor, and some of them are very ornate and very sophisticated you know, homes or lodges that they built, like Mandalay Camp and Hillbillies Camp, which we'll get in, I'm sure, some of those camps later on and some of the people that are in them. And uh, so, and then there's a uh, lake, and then there's a altar of a 40-foot-tall owl, which they do the cremation and care in front of, which they will be doing Saturday night. 
the cremation of care. Well, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that ceremony uh, in a little bit. That's been around a long time, I think since about uh, the late 19th century. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, but back to some of these camps. You mentioned the Hillbillies um, uh, camp and the Mandalay camp. Now, I guess they're divided according to sort of uh, the background of the attendees. For example, the Hillbillies uh, camp would be what? Uh, big business or, or former presidents? No, it's quite a mixture. I'll give you a, an example here. These are names that are very powerful people that we've never heard of before. You, you could walk right next down the street and pass this guy and you wouldn't even know him. Robert Arnold, Seattle First National Bank. Paul Bancroft, Bank America Foundation. Uh, Christopher Buckley and William F. Buckley are members of the Hillbillies camp. Mickey Hart, the, uh, the Grateful Dead rock and roll band, is a member of the Hillbillies camp, which kind of done a lot of us when we found out that. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a, not a huge deadhead, but I, I certainly like some of uh, the music musical stylings of Jerry yeah. Garcia, if you will. But how does one get invited, then? Well, just by knowing somebody. I mean, uh, people hang out, play golf together over years, and they form bonds and social registries over generations after generation. There are certain families that that are intermingled that uh, they well and he thinks as well if you want to join a club and they join a bohemian club and they pay their dues and they remember this camp but it's like the hillbillies camp it's such a variety of people uh, there's a plastic surgeon there's a frank Sproul from bristol myers corporation don rumsfeld secretary of defense is a member of the hillbilly camp and and these people they tend to go every year or once they're invited they might go once and just say no these, these are actual members they pay they, substantial dues to be a member so they'll go up there once a year and not only that they have a clubhouse in san francisco which the club is really based out of san francisco which is a huge building and clubhouse where they have they it's open every day they, they go there and they have lunch and stuff like that so they just don't go up to the grove that's, that's three weeks every summer but the club is uh, active and busy year round all right david cordingly is with us co-founder of the bohemian grove action network as we lift the veil on the secrecy surrounding this uh, a playground of the super-rich elite and find out what's really going on at 2601 Bohemian Avenue in Monterio, California. We'll uh, take a quick time out, come back, and uh, continue to discuss uh, what's going on at the Bohemian Grove. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. David Cordingly is with us, co-founder with uh, the Bohemian Grove Action Network. And um, when did you first uh, hear about the Bohemian Grove and what got you involved, I guess, along with the other uh, founder, Mary Moore, uh, in the uh, the Bohemian Grove Action Network? Well, 
it's in my backyard. I live in Sonoma County, and Mary's is even in her backyard. She's like a few miles from the Grove. So we kind of knew about it for years, but we didn't really pay much attention to it. It was just something that happened every year. And a lot of us were very involved in the anti-nuclear power movement in the late 70s. And that's when we started making the connections with the nuclear corporations and the people that were in the Grove. And uh, then it turns out the first year that we did our we did a vigil and an action at the Grove. We formed a coalition of a lot of groups joined and endorsed the action, the Bohemian Grove Action Network. And that started in 1980. And before 1980, really nobody had ever heard of the Bohemian Club. Very few people had. I mean, the people who lived here didn't know much about it. And after years of protests and vigils and things that we did there, people everywhere know about the Bohemian Club now. It's, it's We've really done our job. Yes, uh, thanks to the world. Yes, hats off to to you and and, and Mary. Now, uh, you mentioned some of the members, and you mentioned Mickey Hart, the drummer from uh, The Grateful Dead, and uh, Donald Rumsfeld, and and Dick Cheney. And uh, I've seen uh, pictures going back to uh, 1967 at uh, Owl's Nest Camp inside Bohemian Grove. And and there pictured are two future U.S. presidents, Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Although Nixon, I think, later... Uh, in the uh, the secret, uh, you know, White House tapes, he said he would, you know, uh, he went there once and uh, was sort of so, I don't know, he, some expletive and some very uh, d- derogatory term uh, against homosexuals and said, I would never shake hands with anyone from San Francisco and I'll never go to that place again. And uh, And then he's quoted somewhere later saying, you know, one of his proudest moments prior to becoming president was a, was a speech that he delivered uh, at the Bohemian Grove. Um, but I'm, guessing, I'm wondering, is it at all like Skull and Bones, where you have to have some sort of, I mean, are you tapped? Is there some sort of a ritual to make sure, you know, is this person okay? Is this person going to uh, divulge what goes on here? Do they have to swear an oath? Is there anything? I don't know about that, but the actual initiation ceremony, that's a good question. I do, you mentioned the Skull and Bones. I was looking at my list of the hillbilly camp. And there's quite a few Yale graduates in the, in the Hillbillies camp now. That doesn't mean they're necessarily skull and bone, but it's a good possibility that they are. Right, right. Well, certainly, uh, you know, anyone who served in a, an administration, in a, in a U.S. administration that passed through Yale, the odds are they're yeah. skull and bones. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, is it anything akin to, is it sort of the summer version or the, the, a more laid-back version of the Bilderberg meetings that go on, which are more sort of, you know, dinner and business and talking? It's similar to the Bilderberg meetings. It's very informal and it's kind of relaxed, but you're not under any scrutiny. Nobody knows what you're saying up there. You mentioned Nixon and Reagan. Uh, an interesting story about that is in 68, the election, it was in 67, they met at Bohemian Grove and decided to uh, made a the deal that uh, Reagan would not run for president in 68 and they would let let Nixon run, and he made that agreement there. That was made at Bohemian Grove. Now, how that do we made at Bohemian Grove? And not only that, you go further back in history. Eisenhower was was kind of groomed in Bohemian Grove to become president because the people didn't know he was going to be a Republican or a Democrat after the war, and they knew he was going to be a strong candidate for president. Both parties wooed him a little bit, so they brought him up Bohemian Grove about 1950, and he hung around, met with some of the people up there, and I guess they decided he was okay. He became a Republican president, but. Uh, it seems like nobody can become a Republican candidate for president 
without being approved at Bohemian Grove a couple years ahead of time. So it is primarily Republicans. I, I remember a, a quote attributed to President Clinton where uh, he was responding to a heckler and uh, he said, the Bohemian Club, did you say the Bohemian Club? That's where all those rich Republicans go up and stand naked against redwood trees, right? So uh, Clinton was obviously taking a shot at Republicans. Is it primarily Republicans? It is primarily Republican, but not entirely so. Uh, Jerry Brown, that had been G. Pat Brown, was a member of the Bohemian Club, and he was the Democratic governor in California back in the 60s. Uh, Harold Brown, who was the Secretary of Defense when Jimmy Carter was a member of the Grove. So there are some exceptions to the rule, but it is primarily white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, Republican rich people that are in the members, but not entirely so. And it's, it's kind of become a little more diverse, I think, the last 20 years than it was before then. Now, w- w- back in 1872, why yeah. was it started? I mean, has its has its mission changed, or was it essentially, from its onset, designed to be this secretive gathering of elites who were plotting and conspiring? No, actually, when it went to the original Bohemian Club, it started by people like Mark Twain, Bret Hart, Ambrose Beers, these were real Bohemians, and newspaper writers and worked for the newspapers, and the owners of the paper and the rich were not allowed to join. It was strictly for the, it was strictly for the Bohemians. The artists. The artists, and it was a club of artists, and the uh, rich were excluded from membership and participation in the Grove for many, many years. And uh, you know, I can even read you a quote here right out of the uh, club analyst. The true Bohemian is a man of genius, refused to cramp with his life and his style of conventionality, who loved art more than a filthy lucre, whose purse was ever at the disposal of his friends, and who lived generously, gaily, and free from care, and as far from the sordid world of respectability as the South Pole is from the North. <laughs> and that was written in 1872. So the how did... Was, it was a real Bohemian club. And then about 1913, they were having trouble keeping their property, and they needed the money. And William Randolph first stepped forward and says, I will help you out and save your club and save your campground for you. Ah, the father of yellow journalism. Yes, and they took the money, and then within years, and then the rich took over the club, and the Bohemians became subservient to the rich that are the members of the club today. Yet some musicians and artists uh, still oh, attend. still artists in, in Beck, Benny, Dennis Day, there were Art Linkletter and other famous actors that I can't recall right off now who are members of the club, but it changed greatly about 1913 when Hearst became a member. Now, uh, that same year with the founding of the uh, the Federal Reserve, is there any yeah, connection there? Was that discussed? I mean, I know it was discussed and formed at Jekyll Island, but w- is it uh, were any of the 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 movers and shakers involved with the creation of the Federal Reserve at Bohemian Grove as well? We don't know, although I doubt it, because the movers and shakers had not become a part of the group the, after the Federal Reserve was formed. Sure, but at beforehand, those people were excluded from the club to begin with, so they really really wasn't a place that was involved in political decisions at that time like it is today. And the the, um, the motto... Um, um, weaving spiders come not yeah, here. Yeah, weaving spiders come not here. What does that imply? What are they saying there? Well, that means that you don't go up there to make business deals. You go up there to enjoy the, with the quote, bohemian experience. Although we know over the years that that is not the truth. A lot of decisions and secret meetings have happened at the Grove. Even when the uh, summer encampment is now, and when Kissinger was doing a shuttle diplomacy back in the 70s, he was meeting people at Bohemian Grove. He, uh, the, the decision to build them, to start the Manhattan Project, which led to the creation of the first nuclear weapon in history, that was that was launched at Bohemian Grove back in the 30s, where Alvarez was trying to collect, raise money to build a cyclotron in the beginning of the beginning of nuclear weapons, and he actually 
Ma lobbied the Bohemian Grove members there at that time and got the money that he needed, which became the Livermore Labs and the Manhattan Project and, of course, the rest of the history. Now, they, uh, I'm guessing it's not like the G20 where they issue a, uh, a joint communique at the end of the, uh, the Bohemian no. Grove. So how do, you, I mean, how do you find out about this? Do you, do you have people that infiltrate? We've had workers that have been uh, infiltrated and have talked to us, although not so much in recent years. Really, really hard to get information out of the group the last couple of years. What would happen if, uh, if David, if you were caught in, in, I mean, aside from maybe being charged with trespassing, do you, would you fear for your life inside the Bohemian Grove? Oh, I don't think so. I've, no? I've known people that have walked in there, and they, they've been pretty well left alone. If you look the part and you act the part, then nobody pays much attention to you. But you, what if, I mean, you, you, you could quite uh, uh, possibly stumble onto a conversation that involved some plotting or conspiracies? Well, that's an interesting story, actually. About We had a reporter from Time Magazine, which is owned by the Rockefellers, and we, and we smuggled him into the Grove as a worker. And he was, he was hobnobbing with Bohemians as a worker and doing his story. And I guess one of the Rockefellers, or somebody saw him in the Grove, and said, what the hell are you doing up here? Oh no! Never got printed, but that was. But we did get people in the grove back in the eighties. Casper Weinberger made a speech called "Rearming America," where he was determined plotting the war strategy of the U.S. government for years ahead of time, and he got a tape of that, which was aired on national public radio. We got a Henry Kissinger gave a lakeside talk. I, I'll get into lakeside talks a little later, but they are a very important part of the Bohemian Grove encampment. Of course, uh, our, our good friend Alex Jones uh, infiltrated um, uh, back in 2000 and made a, a film. He had a hidden camera. Yeah. He and Mike, yeah, Mike Hansen. Yeah, let's, um, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out and we'll get into this cremation of care uh, ceremony and find out what all the, uh, uh, the concern is about this, uh, whether or not it might in fact be a satanic ritual of some sort. David Cordingly is co-founder of the Bohemian Grove Action Network, and we're lifting the veil. What really goes on inside the Bohemian Grove? My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society and we are as a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies to secret oaths and to secret proceedings peering into the shadows where the truth often hides you're listening to the conspiracy show with richard Serrett from zoomer radio am 740 just a reminder John Hutchison, inventor, self-taught physicist, and founder or discoverer of the Hutchison effect, which is able to levitate heavy objects and other things. He'll join us a little bit later in the program, and he is auctioning off his anti-gravity lab on eBay, so I can't wait to get into that conversation. And I'm also very excited about having David Cordingly on the program right now as we lift the veil on the Bohemian Grove. David is the co-founder of the Bohemian Grove Action Network. Now, the 
a creation or the cremation of care ceremony. Uh, what is that all about, David? Well, it, 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 some people compare it to a Ku Klux Klan ritual. Seriously? I mean, it, 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 there's a stage with a large lake in front of it, water, and there's a, about a 30 or 40-foot tall stone owl, and they carry, they wear red hooded robes, and they carry torches, and they do ritual in front of the, uh, in front of this great big owl. And it's been going on for over 100 years. And the intention of the, of the uh, cremation of care has changed a lot, I think, since it originally was done. As I read the records and the accounts of the cremation of care before 1913, that magic year, it was almost like, a, like it says here from, this is from the 1880s, cremation of care, I place upon the pyre all our prejudices and our resentments and all thoughts that are in spirit harmful to men and women. So cre- it's kind of like a purification ritual. Right. Although, then, a, although a pagan one. Well, it's very pagan, but it still was a purification ritual. And it was, you know, the owl, as it was looked upon in their symbology at that time, was the protector of virtue. But then after the 1913, when the, and then I'll, I'll just mention one thing, the cremation of care was done as the last order of business. They went up and they partied and they got drunk and they did their decadence in the redwoods for two weeks and then they did a cremation of care now we're all purified and we go back to the world now today it's done as a first order of business I mean, the first they, they the club opens today on thursday and tomorrow the, the, most people will arrive saturday night at nine o'clock pacific time they will do the cremation of care the san francisco symphony will perform or a lot of the large part of the san francisco symphony will perform and it will People feel now that maybe they're cremating the real thing. That it is not a purification ritual. It is a cremating their. It's like removing their conscience, so that they don't have to think about the results of the world from some of the policies that are created by these people at the Grove and in boardrooms and in places all over the world. I understand that uh, during the ceremony, a recording of the voice of club member, uh, the late Walter Cronkite, is was or is used as the voice of the owl. Yeah, I have heard that, yeah. And, and Walter Cronkite was a hillbilly, too. He was in the same camp as Bush and a lot of these other people that I read earlier, too, by the way. How does that change? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know what you thought of Walter Cronkite you know, prior to learning that he was in the Bohemian Grove, but does, does that taint his legacy? Would that compromise a journalist, for example, if they were attending the Bohemian Grove? I think it would, at least if, you know, he's, job is to report, and yet he's hanging out and getting drunk with President Bush, partying up with him, so I, I, I would think that was, might affect his objectivity a little bit. Yeah, I do want to get uh, into the a little bit of the uh, the debauchery, not just for the, not well, not because it's a voyeuristic thing to do, but obviously there's some cause for concern if we do have uh, uh, presidents and, and uh, other powerful uh, uh, people charged with you know, executing an oath of office, for example, that are engaging in potentially immoral acts. But back to the cremation of care and the owl. Yeah. Uh, now, it, it's been suggested that the um, the owl is a um, it, it's a, sort of an, a, an old Canaanite god. Um, Moloch. Moloch. Yeah. Now, was this? I mean, where do we get the satanic connection here? Why is this considered a satanic ritual? Well, because of the presence of it and the, the way it appears that you look at it, it certainly doesn't. I mean, it is. It does come across as a very satanic ritual. Although I don't. I mean, I don't know what 
who who prepares the ritual, who's behind it. I don't know what the, the how it's done today as compared to the original days, other than it's done. It's the first order business instead of the last order business, which I think affects the uh, energy of it. And I can even tell you another story about them. There was a, for one of, I guess, the second year we were up there, there were a lot of uh, the pagan women and the Wiccas and the witches in the community, which are pretty strong in Northern California. And they, uh, there's a lake um, they, way on the other side of the property, so they did a ritual, and they were doing a ritual, burning candles and fire and doing this, the ritual. At the same time that the Bohemians are trying to cremate care, and they do their thing, and we create the flame, and we light the great owl of the forest, and they couldn't get the damn thing to burn light. Ah, they were being counteracted by the... They were the, being counteracted. Uh, uh, the, the other ritual is called the cremation, or resurrection of care, which we've done several of those. Ah, uh, to counteract, yes. To now, counteract that. You mentioned witches. No, um, not that all uh, Wicca are, are, witch, are women, but no women are allowed uh, at the Bohemian Club. Is that correct? Uh, not as members, but they are allowed to work now because the California Fair Employment Practices Commission demanded that uh, they have equal... Hours. Oh, they even, they ascribe to the the fair practices and, and union rules at the Bohemian Club. I do find that. <laughs> kind of oh, ironic. Yeah. Well, Culinary Local 2 used to supply a lot of the workers for the Grove, which they don't anymore, which was too bad because we got a lot better infiltrators when they did. Right, right. What other sort of r- rituals go on there that you find somewhat concerning or disconcerting? Well, I don't know what I'm concerning. I mean, they, they, they men dress in drag and do plays there a lot. I don't know that thing that's bad necessarily, but it is kind of odd. I'm just trying to imagine... Uh, I don't know, uh, Governor Reagan of California at the time, or uh, a Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney would appear in drag? Well, uh, you'd need a wig. <laughs> right, right. Well, he, he would anyway. Is that, yep. I, I, so there, I mean, even at that advanced age, I mean, it sounds like almost there's sort of this arrested development. I mean, here these people have achieved sort of the zenith of, of political power or, uh, uh, you know, the equivalent in the business world, uh, major industrialists and so forth, and yet it seems like they're back in college for three weeks every year. Yeah, it is kind of like a college frat house mentality there. And a lot of these guys have known each other for years, even went to school with each other, so... And the, and the drinking that goes up there is... It, it's not overstated at all. It's the not. We hear about the drunkenness that goes on. And these guys are bombed. They're bombed out of their ass, going around, walking around the grove. Even being on redwood trees and just. Even future and former presidents. Oh, definitely future and former presidents. That's. I mean, there are eyewitnesses. There is. Is there documentation that? Well, it's just talk we hear. I know. Right. I, always, I always heard the story that George Shultz, who was Secretary of State under Reagan, and still uh, the important advisors of Republicans today. He's with the Hoover Institute. And one of the reasons he got to where he was is supposedly the man can out-drink anybody. <laughs> he can out-drink anybody. He can drink under the table. And that seems to be part of that culture. It is an alcohol-driven culture, that whole rich, upper-class, bohemian grove membership type. I, I would have loved to have seen in, uh, him square off against uh, Boris Yeltsin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that would have been a contest. We could have sold tickets to that one. <laughs> now, are, are there are there foreign? Is this strictly uh, for American politicians and industrialists, or can anyone from anywhere in the world attend? Um, it's primarily the membership is American and North American, but uh, there are guest speakers and guests. I mean, you're a member of a club; you're entitled to bring a couple guests up there. So, there's a lot of very powerful people that go there frequently that are members that go there as guests to somebody and. 
it's kind of interesting to see who invite two up there. So the, I know Helmut Schmidt made a lakeside talk up there one year. Uh, John Majors, British Foreign Prime Minister, he, was, he spoke at the Grove before, and people like that. So it, it's primarily American, but it is open to foreign foreign people as well as far as participating in the lakeside talks and probably membership by now. Well, if there are foreign uh, leaders there, and there are, let's say, um, a senator, uh, a, a standing senator is there and is speaking with uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain or the Chancellor of uh, uh, Germany or whomever and discussing policy. I mean, isn't there... There's something called the Logan's Act, I believe, uh, that, that... I mean, that's illegal, isn't it? They can't be entering into negotiations uh, uh, without the consent of, 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 of Congress. That's my understanding, anyway. Well, they can have discussion. They're not, they're not officially negotiating, although they are. It's kind of a fine line where there's the discussion of the issue of negotiation. Plus, there's nobody listening there. They're not accountable to anybody when they talk to people up there. So that's why a lot of decisions and things are discussed at the Grove that aren't discussed anywhere else. Like the lakeside talks, for example. Yeah, let's let's talk about the the lakeside talks. Uh, tell me about the the genesis of uh, of uh, I guess this sort of institution at the Bohemian Grove. Well, it, 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 each day there's a lakeside talk, noon each day, and on the weekends they tend to be powerful people, or they could be very lighthearted, something going on nature, or butterflies, or anything like that. But then you have people like John Major spoke on his topic with worldview. Martin Anderson, you probably don't know him. He's a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution. He saw his talk with status and this defense. Henry Kissinger actually wrote, spoke on this, do we need a foreign policy? That was the name, that was, that was the topic of the speech. Uh, here's, one, here's one that's kind of ironic. Frank Popoff, the chairman of the board of the Dow Corporation, is, is called spoke on the environmental journey. Of course, we know about Bhopal and environmental journey. About right, that. right. William Perry, Secretary of Defense, primitive defense in American security, preventive defense in American security in the 21st century. James Baker spoke there on the imperative of American leadership. Yeah. But is there a smoking gun, for example, uh, could we trace, I don't know, the origin of the... Uh, you know, the Project for a New American Century, that, that document that many conspiracy researchers point to is saying, see, they, they were laying the, 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 the framework, the blueprint for war in Iraq uh, 10 years before they went in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, is there anything that, like that that, that uh, you can trace back to the Bohemian Grove? Well, the Lakeside Talks I just mentioned, were, some of those were in the early 90s, and they're talking about rearming America and war policy and stuff like that. I mean, they talk about things of Bohemian Grove today, and it's something that three or four years now you won't know, you won't see it manifest in the world or like that. But is there anything that came out of there that you would consider perhaps, I don't know, treasonous or um, illegal in terms of, uh, I mean, are, are they, let me just put it right out there. I mean, are they, do they plot to assassinate people at the Bohemian Grove? World I other? don't think they, they plot that at the Bohemian Grove, at least not during the summer encampment. Now, no. I say the people do have meetings there throughout the year. So you might have 3,000, you have maybe 2,000 men up there this time of year, but you can go up there in December and January and there's nobody up there. So you can have very secretive meetings and things like that. So that's possible during the off season they would have more likely to have 
conspiracies like that than you would during the major encampment. So they, they, I guess they save the major plotting and conspiracies for the Bilderberg meetings. Yeah, probably, or that's when the that's when the topic is brought up and discussed and decided upon. But you know, I. I I don't know, Bohemian Grove, a lot of these guys are so damn drunk up there, they really aren't capable of plotting anything. Right. And and um, are, are they actually parading around in various states of undress? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to imagine yeah. George Bush Sr. running around Starkers, but... No, they, some of them run around totally raw. Do you think they actually are satanic? Uh, maybe an element within it it is, but I don't know if they... The majority of the members, I don't think, are satanic. I think it's brought up in a culture of upper-class culture. And, you know, these people are so insulated from the world. One of my favorite moments as a processor at the Grove was one year, uh, There was we were at the gate, and there was this big black limousine that was turning around and kind of got stuck in traffic a little bit, and I was had my guitar. And I started singing Bob Dylan's Masters of War. <laughs> Probably everybody knows the song. Sure, sure. So I look in the window of the car, and there's Alexander Haig. <laughs> ah, the late Alexander Haig. The late Alexander Haig, and I just belted the song out there, and the guy was terrified. You can see he was no escape. He was actually had to face somebody from the outside world. He got no way, because these people, they hide from us. They hide from the world. How, they hide from the critics so much. How is the, um, the annual gathering generally perceived by the, the the residents of Sonoma County are they do they dread it do they you know roll their eyes every uh, mid-july or do they say you know uh, do they see dollar signs how do they react a lot of people see dollar signs it's up in the Russian River which is about 20 miles from Santa Rosa so it's not a large populated area although it is kind of a tourist area and it brings a lot of money to the area so yeah I guess that People do like that. And do they mix? I mean, do they come off the Bohemian Grove property, come into town, and I don't know, buy uh, buy a coffee at the Starbucks or whatever? They nah, have? Not really. Although there is a golf course there that they play golf at, which is a few miles away. And there's a brothel nearby too, which there always is near the Grove, which is very incredible. There's a brothel near the Grove in close proximity. Yeah. Is anyone tracking the clients uh, that are coming and going? Not that I know of, no. I don't know. I mean, and I mean, I've, I've sat in the place where it moves around. It's a different, it's a different place every year. Everybody kind of looks the other way, but I, I, I've seen the men going back and forth from the cabins there. I had dinner. We had dinner there one night. I mean, they're wearing a Nixon mask. I walked in the place. They almost removed me. From the place <laughs> you were wearing a Nixon mask. I was wearing a Nixon mask. Yeah. <laughs> you just like to to get right in their faces, don't you, David? Uh, yeah, I kind of like to be the merry prankster type, you know. David Cordingly, uh, co-founder of the Bohemian Grove Action Network. And uh, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and a few questions remain for uh, David, as the uh, the Bohemian Grove is actually gearing up right about now. Uh, probably some uh, dignitaries landing uh, up there in, uh, or arriving up there in uh, near... Uh, um, Sonoma County on the Russian River and uh, maybe we can find out who's expected at uh, this year's gathering. David Cordingly my guest. Stay with me here on The Conspiracy Show AM 740.
By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long, where they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged, and nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. You know, uh, those of us who uh, toil in the vineyards of uh, sort of uh, the conspiracy realm often talk about or question uh, why there is fluoride in our water. Is it some... uh, uh, mechanism to uh, to pacify us and control us. Well, now we get this study uh, from uh, New Zealand. Statistics from a study there uh, from the Ministry of Health suggest there are no advantages derived from fluoridation. These statistics actually match similar arguments set forth by the American Dental Association. The latter organization conducted a large study on some 39,000 American children and found that they did not derive any advantages from the use of fluoride. The process of fluoridation is the practice of adding fluoride minerals to water source so that people can get exposed to the mineral through drinking water. Some bodies of water already have fluoride in them and do not need fluoride added. The fluoride is allegedly added so that it can help in the prevention of cavity development. The practice of adding uh, fluoride to water is supposed to allow many people, regardless of income, to receive healthy doses of fluoride. Yet, recent studies are revealing that fluoridation practices do little in terms of cavity prevention, if anything at all. The study conducted in New Zealand by the Ministry of Health reveals that children living in areas with no fluoride have 1% fewer cavities than those children that reside in regions where fluoridation is offered. Nevertheless, the health ministry still asserts that some 30% of children will gain some advantages from regular fluoridation. While the assertion may seem somewhat paradoxical, uh, paradoxical the statistics offered by the organization uh, mix low and high socioeconomic towns and cities to supply a figure to represent the nation. This mixing of statistics results in a rather poor representation of what is really going on. Some researchers argue that the statistics would reveal that both groups of tested children would benefit from fluoridation if fluoridation had advantages. In truth, the statistics are actually revealing that children are simply not benefiting from the use of fluoridation. The bottom line is that the Ministry of Health is trying to make the use of fluoridation sound more promising. Some researchers suggest that the ministry is acting against at least 50 years of studies that indicate fluoridation does not provide an adequate defense against cavities. Well, if that's the case, again, we have to ask, why are they putting fluoride in our water? Of course, this is just going to fuel more conspiratorial minds like yours and perhaps mine. David Cordingly, co-founder of the Bohemian Action Network, my guest, as we lift the uh, the veil of secrecy on uh, what goes on inside the Bohemian Grove, and they're meeting uh, right about now. Uh, how many uh, how many in attendance each year? Are we talking hundreds or thousands? Well, there's four thousand members, and the, the, the peak of the encampment uh, there'll be about two thousand people up there. And uh, and um, is it restricted? If you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. For example, Colin Powell wouldn't get an invite? No, Colin Powell, did he is. Well, it's not that restricted. Colin Powell is actually a member now. He's a member of the Mandalay camp. Ah, he is? Yeah, he was. He was spoke there as a guest about three years ago, and the uh, latest that we have, we do have a fairly current membership list. 
and he is a member now. And I'm pretty sure he's in the Mandalay camp, which is one of the other one of the major uh, camps, the Bohemian Grove. So it is it is restricted uh, in terms of the f- female membership, but uh, I guess what I'm getting at, quite frankly, is that there are no racist overtones here. They they don't exclude Jews or blacks. Well, they used to, mm-hmm. and it's still it's still I'd say 99 percent white. So I mean, there are a few black faces in there, like Colin Powell. And- Jerry Rice, who was a great football player with the 49ers. I, not Jerry Rice, but Gene Washington. He's a member of the Grove. It's a few, it's a few, but not very many. And not many Jewish people were members of the Grove either until maybe the last 20 years. But that old that changed too. It was pretty much all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but it's a little more diverse than it was then. What would be the advantage um, if you weren't necessarily, you know, one of the... Uh uh, members of the upper cross. Let's say you're Mickey Hart. You mentioned Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead is a, is a member. Um, yeah. I mean, are there advantages? Would he get, for example, possibly, I don't know, uh, some stock tips inside trading? What, what, what would be the advantage of belonging to the Bohemian Grove? Well, it's a status thing, for one. It's a great party if you like to go. Beautiful, it's a beautiful place to hang out. I mean, it's prime virgin California Redwoods, although they're logging their own property, which shows you how insensitive they are. I mean, to the richest people in the world, they want to <laughs> logging redwood trees on their own property. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, uh, have owning everything and it's never enough, is it? They just have to have more and more. No, no. Uh, who, um, who's on the, the list of this year's attendees, do you know? We don't know yet, and we won't, if we find out, we won't find out for after a couple weeks, we might get some information. So we have... We don't know who the Lakeside Talks are going to be until later on. Hopefully we'll find out. And do you generally get those on tape? You get an infiltrator in there and get those Lakeside chats on tape? We have, but not. we don't have access to the workers as much anymore as we used to. Is that because they're tightening security? Or they're tightening going- security and they get their workers, I guess they get their workers from a different process than they used to. They used to come right out of local, local too in San Francisco. But... Uh, we, we have had very little luck getting information from the Grove. We had somebody in there a couple of years ago, and she got busted, so she got fired because she had a tape recorder on her. So. And if um, if these, I mean, you mentioned one uh, in one instance, I believe it was a lakeside chat by Casper Weinberger, who was Defense Secretary under Ronald Reagan, and yeah. that, actually, that secretive chat was, was it played on one of the radio, what was it, NPR or something? NPR was going to play it, and then it got squashed at the last minute, and they didn't play it the way I understand. So did it ever come to light? Um, other than maybe on websites or something like that, no, I don't think it didn't get much. Maybe on maybe on a local station it might have got played, but not on NPR. I mean, that goes coast to coast. That's big time there. But. Sure, sure. And, I mean, is there anything, for example, the Casper Weinberger uh, uh, speech, was there anything in that speech that was particularly, would be particularly... Uh, embarrassing uh, to either Weinberger or the Reagan administration at that time had it been leaked? Maybe at the time, and if you look what happened since then, Casper Weinberger talked about being able to maintain two and a half wars, two wars at the same time, and then a smaller war on the side. And you look at today with Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, what's going on, I mean, that policy that Weinberger spoke about at the Grove is is being acted upon and is, is reality today. Yeah, that's pretty cold and calculating. It, yeah. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a dispatch straight from Iron Mountain in many respects. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, so, how does the media uh, 
let's say for example in San Francisco, I, I mean, you know, many of the, the the upper crust of the media, as you mentioned, are are um, are uh, members, but for the uh, the foot soldiers uh, in the print, television, radio media up there, how, do they do they even care about it? Do they cover it? Do they uh, do they pay any attention to it? Uh, they do pay some attention to it, not as much in recent years as they did back in the '80s when we were really making our presence there at the Grove. But then they were—they only would go so far. They wouldn't get into the, any conspiracies or any of the deals that went on up there, or anything that was particularly negative about the members themselves. It just says, "Here's a big country club where rich people are gathering," and it was kind of a celebrity watch more than it was a political real, realization of any kind. Because you know who owns the media. Exactly. You know, who owns yeah. ABC? ABC News was up there one year, and they they did film some people going in now the Grove, but they fired the protesters and the people that individually gave about maybe twenty seconds of time to, and the rest of the story was just really junk, really nothing of any value, other than there's a Grove, rich men go up there, and uh, always in that queue. You know, the media hasn't really, the mainstream media hasn't been that helpful, although the alternative media has been very helpful. We have had. Uh, response from them. What, what is it um, you want to accomplish at this stage in the game? You mentioned the co-founder Mary Moore, and she's 75 now, um, and I uh, I don't know how old you are, but um, I'm, I'm guessing that the reference to the Mary Pranksters would uh, would put you up in your 60s anyway. For, yeah. Uh, what do you, I mean, what, what do you what do you want to accomplish at this stage of the game? What's your message uh, to people listening to this right now? Well, I think our message that we've gotten our message across is that political power is, is not just from politicians, and that the corporate world influences politicians and the decisions that these people make. And I think people understand that today. But in 1980, I don't think people really understood that nearly as much as they do today. They thought you voted for somebody, and that person was responsive to you. Today, we know that they're not responsive to us. They're responsive to the, policy, to the corporations and the special interests that bankroll their path to power. I'm, and I think, we, I think we've succeeded in a lot of what we started out to do in the early days of the Grove Action Network. How prominent a, uh, a role do you think in terms of the, uh, the discussions uh, will the, the BP oil disaster play? Well, I imagine that we'll be talking about it up there. There's a lot of oil and they probably will be coming up plans, they probably want to keep drilling and they'll probably try to soft pedal it as much as they can. I mean, these people, that's what they want to do. They want to drill for oil. They want more wells. They want to, and they're going to come up with a way of selling that idea to us. I mean, they're trying to sell us the idea of the nuclear power is green energy, which is ridiculous. But they're trying to sell it, and people are buying it, too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, a lot of people at Bohemian Grove are very involved in the nuclear power industry. That was what the whole beginning of the Bohemian Grove Action Network was, was an effort to spread awareness of the problems with nuclear power, which we were able to do. They haven't built one in the United States since 1984 now. Now they want to re- now they think we reinvented as green energy. And places like Bohemian Grove will, are important. So that, that's, that's interesting how the oil problem that we're having in the Gulf is being now used as an excuse to build nuclear plants. I don't know what the connection is, but I hear a lot of that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, has he attended? Yes, he has. Is it uncommon for a, a current governor, a standing a governor, to attend? 
No, not really, although if they're Republican, they'll attend. Although even Democrats will sometimes. Governor of California seems to have a access to the grill more than... Uh, Democrat or Republican, they get a buy, I guess. So, yeah, well, yeah, if they want to go. I mean, but Jerry Brown was there. He, 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 was, he was a guest there in 1980. He even came to our vigil, wanted to talk to us at 3 in the morning one time, and we weren't asleep. We didn't want to talk to him. He, oh, he came outside to, the, to see the protesters and wanted to yeah, talk to you. Oh, yeah, sometimes. Some, once in a while, some of the members of the club would come out and try to start dialogue with maybe he had an, Maybe when he got a look at what was going on in there, he had an epiphany or something, and he wanted to, I don't know, bare his soul, but... Maybe. I mean, do you think there's anything that goes on in there that could ruin a political career if, if there were a photograph of uh, someone engaging in certain activities? Well, I'm sure there are. That's why they kept so secretive, and that's why they, members like going up to the group, because they can do They feel they have privacy to do what they want, and they're protected against somebody taking a snapshot of them in an inappropriate attire <laughs> at the wrong place. Maybe today they're a little more concerned about it, and they may not be quite as free to do that as they used to, but uh, no, I, I, I can see where a person with a camera can take a picture of somebody and create a lot of embarrassment for somebody up there, for sure. Well, particularly if a, uh, a, a, a political uh, leader or a business leader was parading around naked and they were, were drunk. Any illicit drug taking? Do, uh, any stories of that? Uh, no, not that I can attach names to, other no. than George Schultz being a champion drinker, but... I don't know. I mean, I can't, I mean it's, it's just alcohol is such a part of that culture. Generally. Even even in, in 2010. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's still the drink of choice for people is alcohol. Are you going to be um, uh, protesting outside the, uh, the entrance to the Bohemian Grove this year? Uh, sure. Not in large masses, though. There's not an organized action this year. But there will be people that will go up there, and especially the uh, the second weekend is when the main. That's when the most of the main heavy hitters are up there. That's when the major lakeside talks are, and that's where. I know you. I know you don't have a uh, a list, uh, and you won't know for several weeks, perhaps. Who? But who do you? Who are you almost certain will? Well, you know who some of the, most of the members are. Um, for example, is it likely that George? Um, uh, George W. Bush, uh, Bush 42, as they say, would, would be there. Probably. He's probably a member of the hillbilly camp like his dad is. We think he was there last year. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that he was because he was in Northern California and he did a fundraiser at the Napa Valley Winery and there's kind of a missing gap of where he was between there and the next morning. And from where he was, it was just by helicopter. It's like a 20-minute ride to the Grove. Now, that would be quite a temptation for poor old George W. because off, you know he no you know he didn't hide from the fact that he he battled uh, he had a, a substance abuse problem he had an alcohol problem uh, yeah. why would he put himself in that situation well because he gets the hot well, there's a story that, that Papa Bush brought his son up there and by 1998 is his guest to introduce him to the crowd this is his, you know like they do with future Republican presidents you got to pass inspection by the members of the Bohemian Grove before you get nominated, and it's incredible how many, how often that's been true. You're, you feel quite confident that that's how the grooming process goes. You don't get to, you don't get the nod or the tap to be the nominee unless you are taken to the camp 
Bohemian Grove camp and uh, are, uh, what, interviewed, interrogated? Interviewed and showcased. Uh, it's kind of like a debutante coming out party, you know. You, uh, you get to meet these people in an informal gathering, drink and party with them. They get to know you, you know, and they can talk to you without anybody else around that or looking over their shoulder. But it seems the Republican president, they, they have to pass inspection at the Bohemian Grove before they actually get a chance to become a serious candidate for the presidency. And the people that are there could make that happen, whether that involved, what, rigging voting machines? What do, we, uh, what do you think we're talking about here? How, how powerful are these people that could uh, anoint the president? Well, they're very powerful. But, I mean, they, they, run, they run the world. They, they, all the financial decisions of the world are run by these people. And it's not only that, it's the perpetuating of a culture, culture of death and destruction. And these people are part of war, and they see war as necessary instead of something that should be prevented because they, find, they, they, they profit off a lot of suffering. That was what a lot of the Bohemian Grove Action Network was about, that whatever your issue is, whether it's sexism, racism, nuclear weapons, nuclear power, war, any issue, there's somebody in that member of that club that is profiting off that, off that problem in some form or other. And that's where part of a lot of our message was over the years. Where can uh, people find out more about the Bohemian Grove Action Network? Uh, go to our website, SonomaCountyFreePress.com. Sonoma oh, County, SonomaCountyFreePress.com. Dot com. David, thank you so much for this. This has uh, been a real eye-opener, and uh, uh, I hope my listeners have sort of a, new, a totally uh, a fresh perspective on, on what's really taking place uh, behind the gates of the Bohemian Grove. Well, I hope we enlighten some people here tonight. All right. Thanks very much, David. All right. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. When we come back... John Hutchison, the discoverer of the Hutchison effect, who was able to levitate heavy objects after creating some sort of a strange field effect utilizing several large Tesla coils, uh, and much more in terms of uh, strange phenomena, and we'll discuss that with uh, John in a moment, but his his, uh, laboratory, his anti-gravity laboratory, which is housed in his apartment, in uh, Vancouver is being auctioned off on eBay. We'll find out why, how much, what you get, and uh, what else is going on in this remarkable, somewhat eccentric inventor. John Hutchison next on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. 
turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood, brainwashed by the school, brainwashed by our teachers, and brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders, by our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Just a reminder, the website, richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. That is your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of new to the whole Twitter thing, uh, but I've got 309 followers. And quite frankly, that's an embarrassment. I think I should have, I need more is what I'm saying. I need a lot more followers on Twitter uh, because that helps me get the word out uh, about the program. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett, all one word. Not sure if you uh, heard about this, but it's a fascinating story. Historians apparently have located King Arthur's round table. They've uh, uh, apparently, it was um, located in a recently discovered Roman amphitheater in Chester, England. And legend has it his uh, Arthur's knights would gather before battle at a round table where they would receive instructions from their king. But rather than it being a piece of furniture, historians have long believed it would have been a, some vast wood and stone structure which would have allowed more than a thousand of his followers to gather. And historians believe regional noblemen would have sat in the front row of uh, this circular meeting place with lower rank subjects on stone benches grouped around the outside. They claim rather than Camelot being a purpose-built castle, it would have been housed in a structure already built and then left over by the Romans. And Camelot historian Chris Gidlow says, the first accounts of the round table show it was nothing like a dining table, but it was a venue for upwards of a thousand people at a time. We know that one of Arthur's two main battles was fought at a town referred to as the City of Legions. There were only two places with this title. One was St. Albans, but the location of the other has remained a mystery. The recent discovery of an amphitheater with an execution stone and wooden memorial to Christian martyrs has led researchers to conclude that the other location is Chester. Mr. Gidlow said in the 6th century, a monk named Gidlus, or Gildas, who wrote the earliest account of Arthur's life, referred to both the City of Legions and to a martyr's shrine within it. That is the clincher. The discovery of the shrine within the amphitheater means that Chester was the site of Arthur's court and his legendary round table. Now, here, here's an interesting ad on eBay, uh, something you won't come across every day. World-famous Hutchison Anti-Gravity Lab. For sale. Hello, folks. This is John Hutchison. I am moving from my location in Canada near Vancouver and I'm selling the anti gravity portion of my lab. No worries, folks. I have more new projects I'm working on, and the anti gravity lab needs to go to a good home. This lab includes all of the components that I have used to produce anti gravity, including many pieces of equipment that I built with my own hands, and these are one of a kind. If you place a bid, I'll send you the complete list of equipment included. Serious buyers only. The anti-gravity lab will be carefully packed on approximately six pallets, and you'll need to send a moving truck to bring it to your place. Uh, please note the shipping information is not correct. You must arrange for a moving company to pick up the pallets. And if you want me to come and set up the lab and show you how to operate the anti-gravity, there's an additional fee of 10000 And it's been featured in numerous TV shows, including National Geographic. And uh, the starting bid is... 
$50,000 U.S. Inventor, self-taught physicist, and the uh, discoverer of the Hutchison effect, John Hutchison, joins us on the line from his home in Vancouver. John, good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing fine. Great to talk to you, too. What, uh, what led you to take out this ad on eBay? Why uh, Get us up to speed. Why are you vacating uh, Canada and selling your anti-gravity lab? Hmm. I actually had it up on eBay in 2007 for $7 million and it almost sold. But today I decided to, well, levitation of stuff for me is a little boring. I like to go into other projects. So I decided to sell it off to somebody that knows how to operate it the entire lab and possibly everything else in here that um, somebody could uh, teach themselves how to how to run some anti-gravity tests or if they want to hire me I'll teach them how to set it up and they can run their own tests and for those uh, uh, who um, aren't uh, familiar with the Hutchison effect uh, explain what it is and what and what you discovered it and how you discovered it it was a discovery I made in about 1980, and it was promoted by Hathaway Consulting Group to the U.S. Pentagon, which then uh, did an extensive testing of it in 1983 under the Ronald Reagan Star Wars program, and later on by the Canadian uh, <clears throat> DSTI Group, Directorship of Scientific Intelligence Agency, Dr. Lauren Kuhn heading it filming the results, but in both cases I never got copies of the videos, and it was a matter of national security in Canada, as well as um, the United States. It was an issue that could be national security, but it was not relayed to me, but Colonel John Alexander appeared with me on many TV shows talking about the effects and what happened in 83. Levitation of any objects at a great distance is machinery can do. It also transforms metals into other kinds of strange configurations, turns them into jelly configurations or transmutes them into unknown alloys, which have been extensively analyzed in Germany. Now, when you, uh, I mean, this was, you stumbled upon this, correct? I mean, you didn't, you weren't necessarily setting out to create an anti-gravity machine, were you? No, it was purely an accidental discovery when I was exploring all the works of Nikola Tesla. And it was quite accidental. The laboratory prior to this laboratory was immensely large at 22 tons of machinery that I accumulated and built. I guess that's quite kind of energetic, but there was surplus everywhere in Vancouver. Nobody wanted any of this stuff, so I was had access to high-voltage transformers and wire cables and all kinds of cool electrical machinery turn of the century. Some of the same kind that Tesla used in his high-voltage, high-frequency experiments. Any relationship between the Hutchison effect and the famed um, dematerialization of the USS Eldridge, all known as Project Rainbow, or the Philadelphia experiment? Uh, yes, there seems to be similarities. And I set out in 2006, actually, to show that with a small one-foot-long Navy ship made of plastic and it put in water and did experiments and it did wink out in and out of existence, caused strange lightning effects happen around it, congealed up oil around the ship. There's some, I don't know what it was, some kind of Vaseline or oil got in the water and it sort of congealed into these round balls. So 
So that was actually a promotional video for a network television series of 13 episodes on different topics, actually. And one of them was the Philadelphia Experiment, and this was a promotional reel. But unfortunately, Hollywood down there and the producers never got it linked up in operation to go full bore on a network TV show. And but but to, get well, back, to get back to your simulation of the Philadelphia Experiment, you actually dematerialized an object. Yes, I did. I mean, we're not supposed to be able to do that, right? Well, I think you can. I mean, it's a matter of proper frequencies. and. No, but according to, I mean, according to conventional wisdom, we're not supposed to be able to, at this point, sort of uh, levitate heavy objects uh, or produce an anti-gravity machine or, uh, I mean, this is supposed to be still the stuff of science fiction. So mm, it, it does fall into the black ops world. They're right. doing all this stuff right now. And my work has been replicated at uh, Sandy National Laboratories in correspondence to me by scientists. And it's been replicated at York University by yet another scientist who just published a book. Oh, my partner just published a book on me called Mindbenders. Mindbenders. And it goes into details on all the experiments he's been through with me. And it's quite a, well, kind of rather an interesting book. Then there was another publication by Nick Cook of James Defense Weekly on, well, on his epic journey into the black ops world. Then I'm featured in this book. You're featured in the book. Yes, I am. Right. Now, (laughs) (laughs) now, the uh, the lab, the anti-gravity lab, Mm -hmm. this was uh, at one point you had a, uh, I don't know if it was in a garage somewhere, and uh, the government... Did the RCMP or, or someone come in and raid your place and steal this stuff? Well, I was in Europe and Germany in 1989 to 1991. There was, this lab was to be shipped to Europe to be used by scientists over there, Dr. Peter Kokoschnik and others. And it was stopped and seized by the Canadian government, uh, included the Vancouver Police, Environment Canada, as well as thesis, Canadian Security Intelligence Services, and many others. It was taken away, and a fence was built around it, and with a warning sign, warning, PCBs, keep out. And they tried to keep it secret, but unfortunately it made the front page of the Vancouver newspaper, Sun newspaper. Were there PCBs, or were they using that as a cover story because they wanted to find out what you were actually doing? Uh, Basically, it's a cover story, and I think they were trying to figure out what I was doing. It seems to be... It leans in that direction. I'm, you know, it's just these strange things did happen at that time, and again, actually went against a BC Supreme Court order where it's nobody was to disturb the lab, but use it to do these experiments in. But however, the government walked over the BC Supreme Court order, which I have plastered all the stuff all over the internet, scanned the documents, and put everything on the net. Now this lab, the lab that you that you have up on eBay, this is one that you sort of reconfigured in your apartment in New Westminster, correct? That's right, and it uh, put out extremely powerful waves. I was in full operation for demonstration for Fox TV, as well as scientific groups from all different parts, from the, even the U.S. Pentagon, where I got a job offer in 2006 to work with them again, but I respectfully declined that. Why? Mm, I don't like the secret stuff. I like to be open about it. I like the TV show stuff because they pay well, huge amounts of money. In one day, to Japanese television, they paid out like $10,000 cash right. 
for footage from Griffin Film Productions. I mean, your intent is that this this Hutchison effect uh, mm-hmm. could be used ultimately as some sort of a free energy device uh, that should be shared with the world, but you're afraid, what, that the Defense Department is going to turn it into some sort of a, a weapon? They already have the technology and they already have weapons like that, uh, directed energy weapons. Sure. That's without question, but the other thing I do is zero-point energy work. And... Did that come out of the Hutchison effect? Is that an extension of, or is this something entirely different? It's um, actually part of it. You're talking about sort of quantum access, finding energy from, what, the molecules in space. Yes, I found that um, certain crystals will grab that type of energy and turn it into actually direct current, usable power. And which I demonstrated in Japan and to many different investors who actually invested in it. What What is the status of, uh, of the, your zero-point energy machine? What is it, like a fuel cell? or mm, It's kind of like a um, battery-type device that okay. um, will latch onto zero-point energy and convert it into direct current in minute quantities, but it's very powerful, and if you put them in series and parallel, then you get a large amount of power. In other, at the moment, it's small quantities, so enough to, uh, what, uh, power a 25-watt uh, light bulb, or what are we talking about here? Oh, any any kind of, um, basically, it can go up to any power level you want. It's just a matter of putting these things together and getting a factory to help manufacture them. So in all the ones we have built so far, maybe several hundred of them. If we put them in series, we'll get like 12 volts and several, several um, up to 30 milliamps to an ampere. That's pretty impressive. So now, of course, how far can you carry it until you get up to levels of power a house? You need actually a factory and some engineers to help out in that area. <clears throat> so you need serious investors. Very serious. But okay. I'm guessing at the same time you would have some serious enemies. Not that I'm aware of. It's no? just a bunch of cyber stalkers out there that put up false websites and well, but, extract money. But yeah, but here you are. I mean, I think of that uh, um, Jeff Bridges movie, uh, Tucker, A Man in His Dream. And here's a guy that built a, bit, a bigger and better car, and they, you know, they uh, they destroyed this guy. And then we had, mm-hmm. you know, Who Killed the Electric Car? That documentary. Uh, I mean, you you have something that could totally uh, change the. The economic, the world economic paradigm. I mean, our our currency is not based on gold; it's based on oil. And if mm-hmm. you replace that with free energy, uh, I mean, obviously, a, a, an incredibly liberating thing. I mean, it, it could co- it could it could it would be a, a game changer. Uh, but at the same time, it would uh, it would be rather upsetting to the bottom line of uh, you know BP and Shell and et cetera, et cetera. You could cost them trillions of dollars. Oh, yes, I'm sure they wouldn't like it too much. I mean, that whole group of characters, they're, they're kind of weird people. I encountered them just briefly at the Cherry Point re, uh, Refinery, BP, and went in there filming for a news story, my own news story, which I post on YouTube, and they have no sense of humor, and they said, you're not allowed to take pictures in here. Turn that camera off. Hmm. So we drove out. <laughs> John Hutchison is with us. His uh, anti-gravity lab is for sale on eBay. We'll uh, come back and ask John about uh, more about zero-point energy. This is uh, fascinating. I mean, if true, this is an absolute uh, 
Game changer, obviously. Free energy we're talking about. Uh, but also, uh, more details on the Anti-Gravity Lab. That's for sale. I, uh, I don't know if I can come up with $50,000, but I would love to have an Anti-Gravity Lab of my very own. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, I'm Richard Serrett. your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Let me give you a uh, heads up what's coming up on uh, the program next week. That's Sunday, July the 25th. And as always, uh, check the website, richardserrett.com. Uh, you'll uh, probably remember the, uh, the film that came out in uh, 2007 uh, called Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist, the movie. And it's a, it's a conspiracy-based uh, 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 documentary film by uh, Peter Joseph, which examines a number of... Well, there's sort of three threads. One of them is uh, acclaimed prehistory of Christianity, uh, theories of September 11th, uh, 2001 uh, terrorist attacks, and other, and other issues such as the, um, the monetary system, wars, and, and other social elements, the Federal Reserve, and so forth. And... Um, it was a runaway uh, uh, sort of cult uh, hit. Also on, on uh, online. I think it was one of the most downloaded uh, uh, movies ever. And what happened was this movie, particularly the elements in the film talking about the monetary system and how to reform the monetary system, that caused sort of this grassroots movement, uh, certainly around North America, and these little groups, these zeitgeist community groups started popping up all over the place. And there's one here in Toronto where the conspiracy show originates from, here on uh, Queen Street. Uh, and I'm going to speak to, I guess, the director of the local zeitgeist movement to talk about not only zeitgeist the movie, but just about uh, what his group is, uh, is, uh, is all about. So we'll talk about zeitgeist the movie and uh, zeitgeist community groups and the, this movement, this growing movement, which is centered primarily around restructuring the monetary system. That's uh, next Sunday. Uh, there'll be much more on the program, but uh, that'll give you a slight uh, look ahead. I, I want to pursue this uh, the zero-point uh, energy conversation a little bit more. Uh, John Hutchison, my guest, the uh, discoverer of the Hutchison effect, and he is uh, auctioning his anti-gravity lab on eBay and the opening bid is 50000 U.S., and uh, he'll come to your house and set it up for you for another 10000 And, uh, well, you've got so many websites, uh, John. Uh, I, I'm not sure which one to promote, but the H- HutchisonEffect.ca is a great place for people to start. HutchisonEffect.ca. Oh, that's the worst one to start. Oh, it's the yeah. worst one to start. I'm, oh, okay. yeah. That's, no, that, unfortunately, that is run by uh, a webmaster who's a pirate. He uh, extracted maybe $100,000 Oh, my apologies. I'm gonna. I'll cut that from the expunge that from the record. Okay, give us the website. Okay, it's. Um, let's see. My main website is www.myspace.com. Um, John K. Hutchison. 
that's my official website. After the com, is there a forward slash? Yeah, forward okay. slash. Okay, so John K. Just typing it in here. Live on the radio, folks. John K. Hutchison. Okay. Let's see where that takes us. Myspace.com forward slash John K. Hutchison. That's taking a, a minute to load, and while it does, uh, mm-hmm. back to the, there we are. Okay, www.myspace.com forward slash John K. Hutchison, H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N. Now, yeah, I this, have a great YouTube channel with over 3,000 videos uploaded. All right. TV shows, things I've done. That, um, so if we go to YouTube and just type in John Hutchison or? Uh, John K. Hutchison, 2008. John K. Hutchison, 2008. 2008 is my YouTube channel. Okay, great. I'll direct people there as well. Now, yeah, I, I mean, I really encourage people while they're listening to the show to go there, and you can actually um, uh, see some of the things that we're talking about, the levitation of heavy objects, uh, uh, you know, metal objects being uh, turned into sort of a gelatin-type form. Uh, do you have any actual visuals, for example, of uh, the, the dematerialization of objects? Yes, actually, I do. It's on Super 8-millimeter film that George Hathaway filmed, and it does show metal blocks disappearing, what they call momentary transparency of metals. Hmm. That was analyzed by the Canadian government, Dr. Lauren Kuhn of um, the DSTI group, Directorship of Scientific Technical Intelligence, who, oddly enough, now are working with uh, BP on a nuke solution in Canada here. Hmm. I don't know if he's retired from that, but same group. Uh, back to the zero point. Uh, mm-hmm. This um, how how big uh, <clears throat> big uh, an appliance is it at the moment? Well, actually, my students uh, Nancy, who's an f- actual news reporter, have made them in micro size that produce the same amount of energy per square centimeter per four hundred potential about four hundred volts. Four hundred volts. Now I, I I'm. Uh, Woefully ignorant about uh, electronics. <laughs> How, what would I need to to run my house? Uh, house size. Let's, let's go by size. It's more visual. It's more realistic. Probably something about the size of four large refrigerators at this point in time. Four large refrigerators. Okay, not bad. I mean, uh, you know, the old oil uh, furnaces were were pretty bulky too. So, uh, and what would it? I mean, how how much would that cost? I would anticipate being coming fresh from a factory and all the promotion that would probably go with it. Probably a fair amount of money at, in the beginning, and then as millions. For, no, I hope not. I hope like five thousand or something like That's that. That's it. I, I hope so. That's the price of a, a, a brand new high efficiency furnace, and maybe throw in an air conditioner. Oh well, it's made. These things are made by dirt from dirt cheap minerals and rocks, and treated in a special way. I think that. Actually, these things, once they're in factory production, high speed, all over the place, that the prices would drop down to hardly anything. I just, John, I, I mean, I want to believe in this so much, but I, it just seems so mm, off the wall to me. I mean... Not really. If you want to check out some scientists with credentials, there's Dr. Franklin E. Mead of Mead Air Force Base, who has a patent on a zero-point energy device. And... That was 1996, December 31. So if, th- if we have this now, John, why are we polluting the Gulf Coast and building new nuclear uh, reactors and, and uh, you know, filling up with a pump? And why isn't this front and center in the media? This could change the world. I know. 
even with Dr. Franklin Mead's um, epic uh, landmark case of actually the patent office patenting it for him, one would think that would be uh, groundbreaking media all over the CNN, but no, no media seems to cover it. And the only media that covered my stuff has been television shows, but Japanese TV covered it, uh, gave us a full half hour on the main uh, network. So I don't know. That's very strange that the technology is not looked at and brought out and people interested in it. It's very strange to me. Do you have a, you have a are you running a home like do you have a, a a prototype in a model home that you're actually using the zero point energy device to to power that home? Um, no, actually, Nancy's got hundreds of these things that are placed in Minnesota and uh, has run all kinds of different things over many months. <laughs> so there are people using these now, and they're totally off the grid. I would have to say that the military industrial complex DARPA had a solicitation for these things in 1997, and they most likely have stuff like that in the super-secret uh, spacecraft they run, mm-hmm. plus other applications. A friend of mine from Special Forces was going to present this actually to DARPA. He came here visiting. We spent a weekend going over all kinds of secret stuff. And he was going off to talk to actually Colonel Tim Deere of Canada, who was involved in my stuff in 86, as well as going to DARPA to suggest this to the Army because the troops have problems with their batteries causing serious harm because they're lithium batteries. But uh, my friend got actually fired. Then he got rehired and is now head of the reconstruction of Afghanistan. So hmm. I don't know what went haywire there in regards to this, but to me it's very strange, and my friend would not lie or make up any kind of stories. He's quite a responsible person in charge of many different operations. So I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, you know. I was down in uh, Washington for the uh, the annual X conference, mm-hmm. and I interviewed uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, who uh, was sort of the, the one that initiated the whole disclosure project. And he talked to me. Uh, he had actually on his uh, I was at his apartment in Washington, and he had prepared this uh, brief for the president, uh, Barack Obama, uh, with a list of all of these black op programs. He provided code names, numbers, uh, contact information. These are black ops that even the, for example, the secretary of the uh, uh, the agency doesn't even know about. In fact, in one case, the uh, the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral, I believe it's Thomas Moore, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, was enlightened about one of these black ops projects going on under under his in his administration. And when he called to inquire about it, this is the admiral, the head of the agency. He was told he didn't have a need to know, and they had promptly hung up on him. So, and, mm-hmm. and I and I mentioned the you know that this was the X conference. This is about UFO disclosure, and and we're being told by people like Dr. Stephen Greer that the kind of technology like quantum access or zero point, this is stuff that's been recovered from UFO crashes. But mm-hmm. you didn't get yours from a UFO crash, or did you? No, um, no, I didn't. I got mine through the study of um, actually T. Townsend Brown's work and a few other old-timers' work. But I did work with a group that was back engineering alien spacecraft stuff um, in 2006 to 2008. 
and I don't know where they are now with it, but I got in, hmm, I decided to back out of it because it became very complex, as well as the investor's money was used up all of it. And her chief guy that was in charge, I don't want to name him, but he's a character unto himself, and he, I don't know, it's like he had all this information, a truckload of information on UFO stuff, and back engineering it. Hmm. I saw the documents. And myself, I have documents from the DOD's SBIR program as well as the CIA people because my ex, a filmmaker, was making a movie on UFOs and did so. So I got a basement full of my own secret squirrel files <laughs> that I'm trying to I'll probably get rid of too. But are you going to put those up on eBay? <laughs> I don't know if you can. If they're government. Um, Documents, right? And they say unclassified, and each organization must destroy them in a certain way. So I don't know if you can put them on eBay or not. I have to find out. Well, if you can. here's the thing: when I uh, when I talked to Stephen Greer, and he was showing me some of these documents that he reprinted, <laughs> and they weren't declassified; they were simply lifted off somebody's desk. They were classified. I said, "How can you do that? Aren't you? Isn't isn't that a national security?" Um, issue, and he said, no, I, we have declared these pro- programs illegal because there's no oversight, mm-hmm. so they can't claim national security. So maybe you could uh, you could publish yours on uh, on the internet and uh, there'd be no, no fallout. Uh, listen, we'll take another time out, come back. John Hutchison, the discoverer of the Hutchison effect, he's selling his anti-gravity lab on eBay, but more importantly, he has, he believes, no, he knows, he knows, he has tapped Zero Point Energy. Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hey, welcome back. Here's an interesting story I read in uh, the American Chronicle I thought I'd share with you. According to accounts released April 24th by the coordinator of an email news and information service, officials of the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and other U.S. government agencies have been involved in security activities involving human-appearing extraterrestrial beings in the U.S. Victor Martinez, the email information coordinator, is a former federal employee with an interest in space, defense, and current affairs. Recipients of his email news item include a wide variety of people interested in emerging and leading-edge scientific and other developments. In his April 24th information release, Martinez quoted one of his alleged established contacts, one of a handful of current or former officials of the DIA, regarding any new or updated information on extraterrestrial encounters that would be of interest to the public. The DIA contact reportedly provided information about the monitoring and intervention by U.S. officials regarding a particular extraterrestrial being posing as a human within the U.S., Martinez wrote in his email report. The contact also noted the more general issue of extraterrestrials visiting Earth who may blend in with the human population for various reasons. According to Martinez, his contact stated, In reference to your repeated requests to present some new information never before disclosed to the public, I went outside of our agency to close intelligence contacts of mine and secured the following. I just received information on a highly sensitive operation code named Operation Tango Sierra, that occurred in early 1980, and it involved U.S. intelligence capturing an alien being living among us. The contact also alleged, allegedly, uh, told Martinez, 
Here is the story. Personally, I've never heard of this particular operation before in all of my years in intelligence and employment. Uh, this information extracted about the alien is highly classified and extremely difficult to obtain. From what I've learned, except for former President Carter, Reagan, and Bush, I, uh, most presidents since then have not been briefed on this specific operation. Martinez went on to report that an apparently new source established via his longtime contacts provided additional details on this alleged operation. The new source reportedly wrote, I'm an intelligence colleague of the man whom you have come to know as Anonymous, who has asked me to brief you on a very spe uh, special U.S. government operation. I was directly involved with Operation Tango Sierra. It involved the finding, tracking, and eventual capture of an extraterrestrial entity. The original operation began in 1980 when an Earth female was identified by U.S. intelligence as being a so-called alien abductee. She'd been abducted by a male non-human in 1977, which was her first abduction, the source allegedly told Martinez. The woman was single, 23, a trusted, well-respected U.S. government employee. The male non-human showed the Earth woman abductee projections of alien life on another planet, the projection was from a small triangle device. The woman viewed this projection, which she described as images displayed in a three-dimensional holograph view. The information source also claimed the male non-human never harmed the Earth woman abductee. During the three years of her ongoing abduction, the Earth woman, woman was taken by the male non-human through a veil of light to another place. The Earth woman described this place as being a light bubble. She would sit inside the bubble and view these holographic projections with the male non-human. On one occasion, the male non-human introduced the Earth woman to another male, whom the Earth woman described in debriefing details as not being human, i.e. not being an, ale or an Earth male abductee. The Earth woman called this other being a creature. Anyway, the, uh, the story goes on and on, uh, but uh, I'm wondering whether, in fact, uh, these were simply the missing pages of the uh, script for... Uh, Men in Black 3. Not really sure, but uh, you can re read the article online at American Chronicle and decide for yourself. Uh, John Hutchison is with us. John, let's get back to your, um, your anti-gravity lab on eBay just for a moment. Now, this mm -hmm. is, this is uh, I mean, do you have actual bids? I mean, I know the starting bid is for 50000 but is someone actually, has, has anyone actually put a bid on this thing? No, nobody's put a bid on it. It's kind of like what happened in 2007 when I had it for a higher price that people were really interested in and were contemplating on bidding, but, yeah, but no, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If it doesn't go, I'm going to list it I, again like that, but I'm going to add all the other stuff I want to get rid of on it, too. But in the wrong hands, I mean, if someone doesn't really know what they're doing, this could cause, I'm guessing, if you can levitate heavy objects and create some sort of an, a bizarre field effect, dematerialize objects. Uh, I mean, I know in, in, you got a lot of grief when you had the lab set up in your apartment. They tried to evict you, the fire marshal, because when you would, oh, yeah. throw, when you would throw the switch, uh, I mean, people from you know, several blocks away were, were experiencing some bizarre phenomena. So, oh, yeah, that was quite an adventure I had there with the mayor of New Westminster. He said it wasn't zoned for levitation or these kind of experiments, and that was something else. And the film guy that was, gentleman Tom's guy who was filming here, he got nailed with it and had to go in the hospital down in Los Angeles. He got so, sick when you threw the switch. Yep. And Ken Shoulders, scientist friend of mine, had to, he actually interviewed him, along with uh, actor friend Steven Seagal and actress friend Paris Hilton interviewed him and communicated with him 
it was quite a fiasco going on, all kinds of stuff flying around different directions. So the fire marshal got involved, and man, it, um, I had to clear out a lot of stuff, but they wanted everything removed out of here, and I said no. I called in my friend who's a lawyer, and he said no. We're not going to comply with that. We'll just make a, a clearer pathway. So the balcony stuff is gone, as well as the center cores of the, the lab itself. But I then, then got it up in operational mode in 2008 and got off several good demonstrations and then thought I was kind of pressing my luck a bit because, you know, it. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I love that the, what the mayor said. This it, your apartment wasn't zoned for an anti gravity lab. <laughs> yeah, and Jude, Dr. Judy Wood was on the phone too. We phoned both on same time into the mayor's office. Dr. Judy Wood, who believes some sort of a a direct energy weapon was was used to bring down the uh, the World Trade Centers. Mm-hmm. The same principle as the Hutchison effect, but on a much larger scale. I'm guessing. I really don't know. That's Dr. Judy Wood's uh, expertise. She's a brilliant scientist. She's discovered many interesting facts about that whole disaster in 2000, uh, 9-11 event there. But, but, but it, I, I'm, just, I'm worried that, you know, the, the, this anti-gravity lab, uh, let's say someone from DARPA or some black ops program uh, buys, it, buys it up. I mean, aren't you worried that it could be used for all the wrong reasons? I know they already have the technology in correspondence with uh, scientists, friends of mine, about that issue. Now, I'm concerned that some crazy person, you know, some person will buy it and doesn't know anything about electronics, but that could be a big issue. Yes, I would say. Yeah, yeah, if they started this thing up and caused a lot of problems, I think that probably would be liable. I don't know. I don't know much about that kind of thing, but... Why are you clearing out of Canada, John? I don't like it up here. I like the United States. <laughs> it, I, I never liked Canada. I lived here all my life and never really liked it. What is it about it? Uh, you find it stifling? You find it... Uh, it's stifling to the spirit. I, I've been so many times in the United States and always find myself in intermixed with unique situations and adventures. People are more open down there and... Um, more adventurous and more dynamic in doing things. So even my filmmaker friend Paul at Polar Shift Films, he he finds it very stuffling, stuffing in Toronto, and he wants to go to L.A. <laughs> so so you're not being exiled. It's just a uh, it's just it, the 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 climate up here just doesn't the, the the social climate or what have you just doesn't square with your your personality. No, okay. no, no. My personality is too wild for Canada, so I got to leave it. <laughs> you are uh, eccentric, to be sure. Yes, I love every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's? I mean, I, I know, for example, you know, you know, you and I talked uh, a while ago about uh, uh, you actually reconstructed the Ark of the Covenant, and oh, that was uh, fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, tell me about that again. That was a lot of fun. I was approached by Blue Book Films, www.bluebookfilms.com, for Discovery Channel Networks, and with a fantastic idea for me to replicate the Ark of the Covenant. So Bruce Burgess, uh, we talked, and I said, Bruce, this sounds fantastic. I love the impossible challenge kind of thing. So I said, okay, I'll get my team ready here in Vancouver, and let's work out budgets. And I agreed to be actually heli- by helicopter landed on Mount Sinai. And I said to Bruce, as long as you give me an AK-47, because I don't trust it over there, 
too violent, you know. I mean, right, right. I want to be armed for Pete's sake. So, but that never happened. Bruce covered the um, e- Egyptian area of that along with our host, and myself. I covered what we're building here in Canada. And after six months in production, with Rudy Fishman, who's a filmmaker himself, filming everything, we did the grand finale test at P and J Metals in Richmond, British Columbia, and we got the results beyond our wildest expectations. Well, first, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, uh, you know, they've heard of the Ark of the Covenant mentioned, but uh, I mean, you, you, so you're constructing it based on the exact blueprint that's laid out in the Bible, correct? Yeah. And so what does the, I mean, it's constructed of a certain, uh, like gold, gold plate, is that right? Gold and silver? Gold. It's really heavy gold. Real heavy gold. We and, settled for copper, though, because Discovery Channel couldn't buy couldn't gold afford. for Sure. It. <laughs> yeah, that would cost uh, untold uh, millions, I'm guessing, to build. But So then once you constructed it in accordance to the uh, Bible, what did it do? Well, we did find a wood, wood um, craftsman who made it out of the actual acacia wood. That was a real lucky score. Only acacia wood, blocks. okay. Yeah, only some blocks from here, so he was happy to do it. So he got hired, he built the main arc, and then we lined it with uh, copper sheeting. And the cherubim themselves were made in England and were brought over and put on top, bolted in. And what accumulated on a cold day just after Christmas was great amounts of static electricity inside this unit, which shot out between the cherubim, the angels, creating a massive spark and lightning show, quite dynamic. And what we caught, what Rudy caught, was entities coming out of this thing. Entities? Entities, yes. Intelligence? Yep. We checked cameras and everything over a period of time when filming even the baby arc that is now in possession of P&J Mills in Richmond, British Columbia. I gave it to my friends over there as a gift. We got strange things even coming out of that. And Rudy would check his cameras out. Yes, not camera fault. It's something weird coming out of these things. So when the grand finale was done, there was entities all over the place. And my girlfriend at the time was pointing them out. Rudy was filming him. But after about 52 hours of prime film tape, it was cut down to an hour and also for commercials. So a lot of the entities were lost, but, you know, it's just editing. That's kind of like History Channel. So, and, and, and in the Bible, of course, the, the Ark, I mean, is used as a weapon. Uh, um, uh, Joshua brings the, oh. uh, the walls of Jericho down using the Ark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's taken into battle. Uh, it said, you know, anyone, uh, I don't know, who's unclean or whatever, who approaches the Ark will be struck down dead. Uh, right. So there's something... There's something obviously metaphysical, supernatural going on with this. I mean, you just it's its not just a piece of technology, right? Mm, no, I think there's other things involved in it. We had a lot of weird things happen. Bruce Burgess, our producer's um, mother, died during that time, too, which upset Bruce. He was in kind of deep depression. And you think it was related to the construction of the Ark? I can't say that for 100% sure, no. but just strange things happen like that. Um, it drove the cabinet maker insane. He destroyed the ark at the very end. It was supposed to go to this, the new Discovery Channel headquarters and put on display, but it never made it there. Dan went nuts and destroyed it and threw it in the garbage. I don't know why. I have no idea why. He destroyed it and, and uh, he, yeah. he went nuts. He went crazy. He uh, took an axe to it and busted it all up and then threw it into the landfill. 
My so word. That massive, beautiful piece of engineering. or. But it was caught right. on tape. It was caught on tape. Yeah, 152 hours of tape. And brought down for Discovery Channel. It aired in 2008. It, um, everybody liked it so far. It's called, if people are interested, they can just go online and uh, check out um, Ark of the Covenant Revealed. It's a type, full title of it, and it pops up. Is it also on your YouTube channel? Uh, pieces of it are on my YouTube channel. Okay, again, that's John K. Hutchison, 2008. Yeah. John K. Hutchison, 2008, the YouTube channel. I and, think uh, uh, a promotional reel is available at www.bluebookfilms.com. Okay. I want to go, before we say goodnight to John, and I appreciate your time, uh, This um, I want to come back to the zero-point thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you getting any serious media coverage of this? I mean, if I were to bring a film crew, because uh, I'm a, sort of getting into the documentary business, and that's why we were down in Washington. We're doing a documentary on, on UFOs. Uh, right. But if I were to bring a film crew at some point down to, to Minnesota, would you be able to demonstrate this thing for me on camera? Oh, 100%. Yes. Um, oddly, it, you mentioned that because... Of- a major film company phoned today, and they want me under contract for three months not to go with another major network. They may be covering this, and it'll be a huge explosion of information. So that just was a call I got in today. Kind of strange. Kind of a strange day, a lot of activity. Right, right. I mean, so, but do you have, do you yourself have video of this thing operating? No, I got tons and tons of video. All over the place, and it's it's you can it's replicate you can replicate this. It's not just a hit and miss thing. It works every single time. Every single time, guaranteed. Uh, Griffin Film Productions they got lots of good, cool, high definition footage for broadcasters and uh, lots of that. Computer found put camera and Shira have. It's available online. online. Is it available online? Yeah, they just go to www.griffinfilmproductions.com. So many websites. Griffin Film Productions. Mm-hmm. That's G-R-Y-P-H-O-N Productions.com. Griffin Film. G-R-Y-P-H-O-N. Griffin Film Productions.com. Uh, Griffin Productions.com. Oh, no film. <coughs> Griffin Productions.com. Yeah, G-R-Y-P-H-O-N Productions.com. Okay. Uh, I'd like to link up to that on my site if I could, and, and uh, I'd like people to see that, um, that video. Oh, yeah. It's um, Also, if you just Google search out Beyond Invention, all kinds of stuff comes up on that. This is absolutely well. free energy. Absolutely free. I mean, once you get the um, actual device in your house, you're mm-hmm. basically just, from space, you're getting free energy. You're getting free energy, and the cells have lasted since the first ones are made in 1993. They're still running. I've got to get down there and, see, and check this out. Oh, you, you should. You'll really enjoy it. John? Uh, always a mind blower uh, having you on the show and uh, first of all good luck with uh, selling the uh, anti-gravity lab on uh, eBay okay. uh, but more importantly and that, and that is uh, uh, continued success with your uh, work on the zero point energy because as I say this is a game changer this will change the world imagine being able to bring uh, electricity to uh, people in the third world who have no way of producing their own energy and it will it's pollution free it won't cost us a cent uh it's it it could be the answer to uh, all our problems or many of them anyway so good luck with that john thank you again thank you sir for having me on your show all right john hutchison and uh, his website again 
www.myspace.com forward slash John K. Hutchison. And uh, if you want to check out the video of footage, of the film footage of the Zero Point Energy device, griffinproductions.com, G-R-Y-P-H-O-N, griffinproductions.com. That's it for me. My thanks to uh, Dan Ellison for technical production. Thanks to David Cordingly from the Bohemian Grove Action Network. And of course, the eccentric uh, John Hutchison, self-made man, inventor, physicist, extraordinaire. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.